You can turn in your Bibles to Romans 8. And uh, this morning we're going to be diving into verses 31 and 32 in particular. Uh, and this is our final week in Romans for a while because next week we begin our Advent series. But Romans 8 is such an important chapter. Uh, don't let uh, familiarity breed contempt here, right? It's, it's such a beautiful and incredible chapter containing so much of our hope and the glorious foundations of our faith. And the text I'll be preaching from today, <clears throat> it may be the summit of this grand mountain. Amen. And so I want you to hear it in context. And I want us to just soak in this scripture before leaving it for a time as we, as we begin this new week, this first day of this new week, because I know all last week you've been bombarded with voices and messages from countless people clamoring to be heard, everybody with something to say or sell or shout or swagger, and you've heard what everyone else has to say. Now listen to what God has to say. Amen. And what God said in his word is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the this, this spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know, for 
the creation it's, has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So in verses 31 through 35 of that chapter, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. He asks seven of them. Uh, and, and just in case you're not familiar, a rhetorical question is really a statement that's disguised as a question. So you're making a point, and you ask the question in order to engage the mind of the person that you're uh, telling it to, drawing from them a recognition of the truth you're stating. But there's always an answer to a rhetorical question, even though sometimes the asker doesn't need or want it to be answered, that still, there still is one. 
And so the rhetorical question is one that you want answered in a particular way. Like when a prosecutor says, where were you the night of the murder? He's really saying, I know you were there, you murderer. Admit it. Or, or when I give a present to my kids and I say, who's the greatest daddy in the world? I'm really saying, I'm the greatest daddy in the world. I want you to say so. So Paul asks these questions, but he's really inviting you into these incredible truths to give your assent to them, to be in awe of the answers. And I'll go through the first two quickly and then really dwell on the third because it's the most intricate and wonderful. So first Paul says, what shall we say to these things? And I love how he gets to this point after having just told us some of the most incredible, hope-growing, heart-stirring truths. And he says, what shall we say to these things? What can we say? What can we add? What words are adequate in response to such glory? And I love this because it's a little bit how I feel when preaching from Romans 8. But I'm encouraged that he continues writing. Because apparently there is an answer to what shall we say to these things. And the answer is rejoice in them. Say them again with renewed vigor and different words. Sing a new song, as the psalmist says. To apply them to your life and speak them to your soul. To stir up your affections and confidence. Step out in faith with these truths like wind at your back. Remind others of them and encourage them with them. Say it, say it again and say it in a new way. Meditate on it. Exult in it. This is what Paul does. You see that. You can't help having your heart stirred when you read from here, uh, verse 31, to the end of the chapter. He's working out the implications in wonder in his heart. Another way of asking the question might be, what can we conclude from all this? What conclusions can we draw from all that he's just said in Romans 8? And he begins that exploration with the question, the next question. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? This God who works all things together like a cosmic conductor, who has loved us beyond the bounds of time, if he is on our side, then who could possibly prevail in opposition to his plan for us? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is one of Pastor Tim's favorite verses. I don't know if he would say that if you asked him, but I know it's true because uh, I had this verse memorized before I ever even started reading the Bible because uh, just listening to him preach because he cites it so often, and as he should. Um, and there's a story of one of those times, as many times that he's referenced this that, that I still think about a lot because it makes me laugh every time. Many years ago, I was a young man here at Bethel. I was sitting over there, and uh, Pastor Tim was preaching a sermon that in large part was grappling with the reality of our enemy, the devil. And after he spent a fair amount of time uh, talking about what Scripture has to say about Satan, uh, he very wisely came to this verse to, talk, to, to root us and ground us in the reality of God and to give us perspective and hope. Uh, and as Pastor Tim in his passionate Pastor Tim way said, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he paused. And one well-meaning gentleman who was sitting nearby had been following the sermon closely. And so he knew the obvious answer. And he belted it out. Satan! And my eyes grew wide and my face grew red. 
I was like, oh. And Pastor Tim, undaunted, said with renewed gusto, if God is for us, who can be against us? And this gentleman must have assumed he had the right answer the first time, so he matched Pastor Tim's enthusiasm and belted it out even louder, Satan! (laughs) And obviously, this man didn't understand exactly what Paul was saying. And what Pastor Tim was quoting was this rhetorical question. But what I love about that story is that it shows how we might answer this question if it weren't rhetorical. Like if we were genuinely asked who is against us, we might have a lot of answers. Not the least of which would be Satan. And plus all kinds of people and things, this is how it really feels. We do indeed have enemies and adversaries and critics. And Paul is not being dismissive of those realities. And you see that as you finish the rest of this chapter, right? Look at all the things he talks about. He talks about distress and persecution and danger. He talks about people bringing charges against us and condemning us and even killing us. But what, is, what he is saying is that when you really understand the God who is for us, when you grasp even an inkling of his power, and his might, and his control, and his love, then you start to see those things that are against us for what they really are, as ultimately powerless and failures. Because if God is for you, this God who can work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, if this God is for you, then it doesn't matter who's against you. Because no matter their aims or their intent, it will ultimately be turned in the potter's hand. The devil digs a pit and the Savior makes a well. This is his way. And he's not just for us in a general way. He has proven just how for us he is in a profound and incredible way. So Paul brings clarity to this God who is for us and and how he is for us. And his third question, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is quite possibly the most important verse in scripture. It reveals the costly grace and the generous love offered to us in Christ. And it's an argument intended to convince your mind and your heart to hope. And this kind of argument is called a fortiori, which means, it's Latin for meaning, meaning from the stronger. And it's arguing from this, from this grand reality to a lesser small one, from greater to lesser. And it's like this. It's like just the other day, I thought if, I, you know, I'm a little hesitant to borrow things from people sometimes, you know, I don't want to impose. But I thought if the Hildebrand family has spent so many hours and days helping me in the renovation of my home, then surely they'll let me borrow a hammer drill for a couple of days. Because borrowing the drill is far less of an imposition and they were far more willing to do this greater demand so the lesser one is more is all but assured. And the a fortiori reasoning held. I called Brian. He's like, yeah, no problem. Let me borrow it, right? Another example is that of missionaries. When you read the account of missionaries, which I love to do, especially the ones who had a really hard go of it, like John Patton or Hudson Taylor or Adoniram Judson, 
There's always a point that sometimes doesn't come for a long, a long time, but there's always a point once the people they live among see how devoted they are and how much they've given up to be there with them. And so the people start to come to the missionaries when they're in need. And we can easily assume what they're thinking, can't we? They're thinking if that person's willing to uproot their whole life and suffer these illnesses and indignities and losses to serve us and to love us, if they're willing to do all that, then surely they'll help me with this or that need as far as they're able, right? Not only will they be willing, but they'll be eager to do so. And it's the same kind of reasoning with God. If God sacrificed his own son on our behalf, then do you really think he would hold back anything else in his power to give you? He's given his greatest treasure to you. Let that reality shape how you think about what he has yet in store for you. So I want to look at both sides of this a fortiori argument, both the greater and the lesser things. So we'll start with the greater, the stronger, and it's, it's stated both negatively and positively. And both are really important. So negatively, he says he did not spare his own son. Positively, but he gave him up for us all. So we'll start where the text does with that powerful statement. He did not spare his own son. Let that really hit your heart. Why does he phrase it like this? He didn't spare him. He's pointing to the reality of God's divine fatherly love. The father loves his son in the way any of us do, but much, much more and much more perfectly. Which of us would not spare his son such suffering and death if we were able? Of course we would. And I'm convinced this is one of the main reasons why God gave us sons. Why he designed this human system in such a way that we too would have sons. So we could understand what it's like. And understand the unimaginable sacrifice that he offered for us. And the costliness of it. When the text says his own son, it's emphasizing his uniquely special place in the affections of his father. There is no other like him. And he loves him with an infinite love. And he did not spare him. You will never be transformed by grace until you understand the cost of it. Grace is not cheap. It's not just, oh yeah, everybody's good. Doesn't matter how you live. God just loves you with a smirk and a noogie when you're being a rascal. That's not biblical grace. Real grace, the real grace of God is expensive. It's only when you grasp the costly grace of Christ that you will be transformed by it. Yes, you are accepted and there is no condemnation in Christ, but you must know what it costs God to procure such a hope for you. And why did it cost him this? Because for him to just shrug off your sin would make it seem like he agreed with you about it, that it's okay, that it's no big deal. That it's just okay to rebel against the one and forsake the one who gave you your very breath. We all are rightly disgusted by someone who snubs their nose at someone who has generously given to them and cared for them and loved them. 
who has given them nothing but opportunities and love. We have a word for it. It's called betrayal. It's one of the wickedest, gut-wrenching experiences. We're angered when Edmund betrays his siblings to the White Witch. We're appalled when Anakin betrays Obi-Wan, who has devoted so much to him. We recoil when Scar wants to be king so bad he despises his own brother Mufasa and his nephew Simba. We're shocked when Snape turns on Dumbledore, who alone was willing to give him a second chance. That one comes back around, but you get the point. (laughs) And of course, there's Judas, who walked with the Lord of light and life himself and betrayed him with a kiss for a bag of coins. And to just act like it's no big deal would be as outrageous as the betrayal itself. And to regard the one, him who, who gave you life, as unworthy of that life is an infinite betrayal. It's treachery. And God is not only the maker of this world, he is also its judge. And to let despicable traitors run rampant and unpunished would be to add yet another injustice. And our God is just and inescapably holy. For us to be made right, an infinite price must be paid. And if it's not going to be paid by us, then it must be paid by someone who is able and willing. John Flavel, a Puritan pastor, once wrote a moving take on the exchange that occurred before the father and the son in eternity past when he, the father was driving his bargain with Christ for you. And the father says, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves. And now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them. Or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And thus Christ returns. Oh my father. Such is my love to and pity for them. That rather than they shall perish eternally. I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all your bills. That I may see what they owe you. Lord bring them all in. That there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand shall you require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath. Than they should suffer it. Upon me my father. Upon me be all their debt. And the father responds, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son says, content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Tuesday night, I was putting Evergreen to bed, and I was singing her her, her goodnight song that I wrote for her, like I always do, uh, so that as we go to bed, we can remember what Jesus said. And one line says that God loved you so much that he gave his only son to take into himself all the bad things that we've done. And Evergreen asked what that line means. So he took into himself these things. And I explained that Jesus never did anything bad. But he took our badness into himself 
so that when he died on the cross, our badness died too. And Evergreen very astutely uh, said, how can badness die? Only people die. And she's right. Sin cannot be punished in the abstract. An actual person has to pay for it. For sin to die, a person must die. So the Bible tells us, he who knew no sin, for our sake, was made to be sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And that's the positive statement. He gave him up for us all. Christ's life and death and life again is a gift to us from the Father. With Christmas season coming up, there's a number of theological ways that you can explain the tradition of gift giving, but this is by far my favorite because we are celebrating the ultimate gift, the gift of Christ given up for us all. God's ultimate treasure given to you and for you. It demonstrates his unbelievable generosity and grace. And there's joy in this. Even for God, as we uh, sing about the Lord's table, when we take uh, Lord's Supper after this, uh, it, we'll sing that it's a somber celebration. And that's the paradox. It is somber, but it's also a celebration. In college, I read a book called The Pleasures of God, which is a book trying to know God by understanding what he takes pleasure in. And he tells us these things about himself. Like in Isaiah 53, we're told that the Lord was pleased to bruise him. He has put him to grief, talking about Christ. So in the book, there's a whole chapter about God's pleasure in the bruising of his son. And in that chapter, it closes with a parable that I wanted to read to you because I think it gets to the point that Paul is making. So this is a short little story here. Once there was a land ruled by a wicked prince. He had come from a foreign country and enslaved all the people of the land and made them miserable with hard labor in his coal mines across a deep canyon. But he had built a massive trestle for the trains uh, that carried his slaves across the canyon to the mines each morning, and it was heavily guarded. And there was, in this land, there were still just two men who were free, an old one and a young one. And they lived on an inaccessible cliff overlooking the trestle, and they hated the trestle, and they resolved together to blow it up. They planned and they prayed and they reminded themselves of the reality of heaven. And the night for the deed came, and their hearts were pounding with joy. It was a hard plan. It would be possible to time the guard's trek so that the explosive could be carried quickly to the vulnerable spot on the trestle. But it's certain that the man would be seen on his way back. So to make sure the trestle blew up, the young man would detonate it by hand on the trestle. And he would blow up with it. But they believed in heaven, and they loved the people of the land. And so even this sacrifice made their hearts leap with joy. And the hour came, they folded their map, stood from the table, and embraced each other. And when the young man got to the door, he turned with the explosive on his back, and he looked at the old man, and he said, I love you, Father. And the old man took a deep breath with joy and said, I love you too, son. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
And what I love about that parable is how it sets the stage for the next part of this argument Paul is making. Because what if some of those formerly enslaved people that in their newfound freedom make their way up to the old man's mountain and they say, we're free now, thanks to you. Can we make our dwelling here with you on this mountain? How do you suppose that man would respond? Would he say, no, go find your own mountain? No. His son just died to free these people in part because of his own heart for them. He's going to welcome them as a testament to his son's sacrifice. He has given the greater thing. Of course he will share the lesser. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What I love about seeing this verse as an a fortiori argument, which remember means from the stronger, what I love about that is that it shows that God, for God to give us everything is the weaker thing, the lesser thing. All things is less than his son. Jesus is infinitely greater than everything else combined. So if he has given us him, then, must, then we must not expect him to withhold any good thing from us. And the word thing in this verse, all things, that thing is just a filler word in English. The Greek just says panta, all. He will give us all. And adding things may be a little unhelpful just because when we think of things, we might think of objects or trinkets. And as we've all learned from the Little Mermaid, you can have gadgets and gizmos aplenty. You can have who's it's and what's it's galore. And you can still say, who cares? No big deal. I want more, right? But this is speaking to something much more profound than riches, than a mansion. He will give us all. Nothing in God's power will be withheld from you for your good. And God is all-powerful. This is not just material blessings. This is all of his promises. This is all joy and pleasure. This is all glory and goodness. This is all bounty and blessings and, and, and beauty This is all peace and purpose. This is all victory and justice. This is all of his presence. This is all of himself. Not only in the future, but even now. And our confidence in this hope rests firmly on the solid ground of verse 31. Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he will most certainly give us all things graciously with him. And, th- and the next four rhetorical questions, I think, are, are f- the, in the next verses, they're an outworking of this. Right when he asks, who can be against us? Who, who, I mean, he says, who shall bring any charge against us? Who can condemn us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one can bring a charge against us because God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. So of course he will justify us. No one can condemn us because God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. So of course he will free us from condemnation. No one can separate us from the love of Christ because God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. 
Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword cannot conquer our hope because God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I want us to remember this truth. That's why I'm saying it so much. (laughs) Once you remember it and remember it and internalize it and lean on it and trust in it and pray it. We've kind of lost touch with some biblical habits of prayer. We think prayer needs to be us telling God what he needs to do. But scripture, in scripture, people praying often look like them telling God what he has already done. A way of intentionally remembering the character of God in the presence of God. When you face those things that Paul said cannot separate us from the love of Christ, when you face them, remember God and say to him, you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for me. So I know because of that incredible truth that no matter what I face, you will graciously give me all that I need. You will give me all that is good for me. You will give me all of yourself and all of your spirit. And this, this is to give you assurance and confidence as you draw near to God. A big purpose for this text and why it was written and given to us is to give you confidence before God and hope. When as I reflected on this, I just kept thinking about this, one of my favorite poems. It's an extraordinary poem by George Herbert. Herbert is one of my favorite poems. He, was, he, he gave up a promising career to be a, a pastor in a small town, and he died relatively young from tuberculosis, and he never published any of his poems in his lifetime. But he handed his collection to a friend who visited him when he was on his deathbed. And his friend published them after he died. And they became some of the most enduring and influential poems of all time. Especially his last poem in that collection is probably his most famous. It's titled Love. And it's actually the third poem with that title in the book. So it's sometimes called Love Number Three. And since it's the last in that collection, this was before, you know, word processing, Uh, So it's probably the last poem he wrote as he neared death and prepared to meet his maker. And in the poem, divine love is personified as a host welcoming Herbert's soul into a feast of which he feels unworthy to enter and partake. Let me read it to you. It says, love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. In that poem, divine love finally wins Herbert's ashamed soul over by reminding him of who bore the blame. But then, even then, Herbert says, okay, I'll come in, but as a servant, I'll serve. But then love says, no, 
you must eat with me as an honored guest. Christ was not spared. And because of that, you might be welcomed. Your sin and shame is no match for his sacrifice. And since God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you, then you can count on the fact that he will graciously give you all things. Divine love welcomes you in even today. Sit down and eat. Let's pray. Our Father, you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. And so we know because of that, that you will graciously give us all things with him. I pray that you fill us with a deep hope, enduring hope that lifts our eyes beyond our struggles, that assures us that nothing can separate us from your love in Christ. All the things present that we are facing, even as we leave today, all the things to come, they can't separate us from your love in Christ, this amazing love. And I pray that you make us people that are shaped by that, that walk out of this room today with that truth as a wind at our back. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.